Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with us, as always, is the only producer who would never hesitate to evacuate the city, Joseph Wren. How are we doing tonight, Joe? We are preparing ourselves for the worst. There have been sightings of giant monsters closing in on the city boundaries. And from what I hear, there's a lot of fire. There's a lot of swimming. There might even be a three-headed monster trying to take over downtown. How are you this evening, all of you gruesome people? You know, calling Santa Claus a gruesome monster. Wait, I'm sorry, (laughs) what? Sorry, guys. We're recording this in December. I couldn't resist the joke. I want to start tonight's episode with a question. What is the opposite of cosmic horror? Whenever you start talking about cosmic horror, people immediately think of H.P. Lovecraft and the so-called Cthulhu mythos. Those are fine jumping off points for that subject, but there is more to it. The indifference of the universe, that we may not be the only intelligent species, the seeming hostility that exists just in the emptiness of space, and so on. You get the idea. You can talk at length about this subject, but I never hear anyone bring up the idea of the opposite of cosmic horror. In thinking about this, I started to wonder if maybe existential horror is the opposite, but that doesn't seem to work either. Most threats, when you kind of get down to it, are existential threats because you're worried about your life or the life immediately around you coming to an end. So the phrase I have come up with is terrestrial horror. Thus far, I haven't encountered any usage of that phrase, so I want to try to talk about what I mean by that. Terrestrial horror is the sort of horror evoked by something deeply connected to the Earth. That could be something like the dark draw of a cave system descending deeper and deeper into the Earth, or maybe the vastness of forests and what might be lurking in them. For me, nothing evokes that sense of terrestrial horror as what is down in the depths of the ocean. Our hubris has led us into the trenches of the deep. They've shown us eyeless fish, seemingly alien squid, and the ancient thermal vents perennially dumping superheated fluid into our oceans. And I've even seen a video from a BBC documentary about the deep sea showing supermethylated lakes at the bottom of the ocean. Lakes in the ocean filled with water that is different from the water around it. That thought practically makes my stomach turn just by itself. But for my dollar, there is no character that so perfectly symbolizes terrestrial horror than the king of monsters himself, Godzilla. And yes, for the duration of this episode, I'm going to use the name Godzilla. I know that in Japanese it's Gojira. I'm American, so I'm just going to say Godzilla. Nothing personal. For the record... We did not intend to do an episode about a Godzilla movie at the same time that Godzilla Minus One had been released. And we definitely weren't thinking of that movie at the time it started breaking box office records. Call it a happy accident. And if you haven't seen Godzilla Minus One, you need to see it on the largest screen possible. I do not mind telling you this at all. This movie, it lives up to the hype, and it's virtually perfect, in my opinion. So, after you have finished this episode, and have left it a five-star review on a podcast service of your choice, go see Godzilla Minus One. You will not be disappointed. 
But for those of us who are kind of long-term Godzilla fans, there is no surprise in the popularity of the resurgence of the King of Monsters back into pop consciousness. There's something vaguely perfect about his malleability as a character, what he can symbolize, and how much fun you can have with these films. But those subjects are also double-edged. Godzilla flicks can be fun, or as deadly serious as you want them to be. And there is no movie in the Godzilla canon that illustrates this more perfectly than 2016's Shin Godzilla, directed by Ano Hideaki and Higuchi Shinji. On its surface, Shin Godzilla feels like a bizarre pastiche of film elements slamming into one another, a government procedural mixed with a kaiju movie with light sprinklings of comedy and action to help liven the mood. But as fans of our show will know, I wouldn't be talking about Shin Godzilla if there weren't some deeper and stranger things buried in the DNA of this movie. Everything about this movie is layered and, in a way, is a natural outgrowth of the sometimes polymorphous nature of Godzilla as a franchise. But even then, calling Godzilla a franchise feels a little off. So, follow us into the dark depths as we try to disentangle this concept. I don't know um, if this actually shows up in the script later on because I'm drawing a blank because we've been recording all day, but I, something I want to uh, fill in here that I think is so neat is the name Shin Godzilla. Do you have, uh, uh, how's your Japanese, Joe? Powered by Google Translate, my friend. <laughs> not so terribly, not much worse than mine. Great. Okay, so the, the name Shin Godzilla is a lot of fun because um, the kanji for the word Shin is really interesting because it can describe, because there's different kanji for it. You can use Shin, the kanji, to describe new, so new Godzilla. You can use the kanji Shin to describe divine, the, the god Godzilla, the divine Godzilla. Or you can use the term Shin to describe correct, the, the true Godzilla, the correct Godzilla. I think that's so neat. But what's so cool is that the writers and directors didn't use kanji for it. They used purely, they used uh, kana. So it's just literally just the word Shin Godzilla. I think that's so neat. That's such a brilliant little way to play with the formula. At the time of this recording, the Godzilla franchise is approaching its 70th anniversary. Joe, tell me if I'm wrong, but can you think of a single film franchise that's this old, right? Or even a character concept in cinema history going back that far that's been remotely consistent. Outside of Disney characters like Mickey Mouse, who are uh, getting close to an era of, of public domain, uh, Steamboat Willie in 2024, the design for Mickey Mouse will go public domain next year. Um, Outside of Mickey Mouse, who first appears in 1928, Godzilla has had a longevity like few others. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those film franchises that started as a series of stories, some of which crossed over into American society and other parts of the world very early on. And we're, we're going to talk about the original film briefly. It was about nuclear tragedy. It was about war. And to take that concept of a giant monster attacking the city of Tokyo and make a multifaceted character out of it 
that can literally do anything. You want Godzilla to be serious? You're going to get that. You want him to be a little campy, a little cartoony? Do you need to tweak the character and have him cross over and fight giant monsters with other giant monsters from other series? He can do that. He can also be shared with other filmmakers who put their own spin on the character, some with more success than others, but we always come back to the king of the monsters. And the reason that character works so well, it's like Batman. You can do anything you want with the character and it will work. That's how special and how awesome Godzilla is. With all that in mind, why am I personally hesitant to call Godzilla a franchise? Uh, well, because there are distinct eras of Godzilla, like Joe was saying, you know, each one is very different. They have wildly different flavors and approaches. Even within the same era, some of those movies can feel wildly different, right? Broadly speaking, there are four eras of Godzilla. The Showa period from 1954 to 1975, the Heisei period from 1984 to 1995, the so-called Millennium Era, predictably from 1994 to 2004, and the current Reiwa Era from 2016 to present. Listeners with any knowledge of Japanese history know that Showa, Heisei, and Reiwa are referring to the names and uh, reigns of the current Japanese emperors on the throne at the time that the films are made. Um, these movies do feel different and look different and have wild interpretations because of those different timelines and by themselves also have their own different timelines to consider. Like there's no one consistent Godzilla universe. I won't belabor this point too much, but we'll scratch the surface of that idea a little bit later on. Um, as just a weird side tangent, I've always wondered if any of the emperors of Japan were fans of Godzilla. So, if you are the current or former emperor of Japan, you should reach out to us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com or join us on Discord. We would love to have you on the show. I cannot believe I stuck the landing on that that one. That was mm, proud of myself there. Right. Joke aside. Um, the aforementioned eras of Godzilla don't really include the American films featuring Godzilla. That, that for whatever reason, is not it's not not canon. It's just not part of those eras. Um, and that includes the, in my opinion, like criminally underrated eponymous film, Godzilla from 2014, the, the one with Brian Cranston in it. Um, and that also includes, oh God, the frankly criminal 1998 Godzilla starring Matthew Broderick. Uh, did you ever sit through that insult the cinema? We could be talking about any other film in this franchise. And you want to ask me that question? Of course I did. It was a new Godzilla film. It was an American Godzilla film. What I wish they had told me before I bought the ticket was it's the second half of The Lost World Jurassic Park 2, only that's the entire movie and it's not Godzilla. And I'll be honest, the first time I watched it, I didn't hate it, but it wasn't Godzilla. Yeah, it's, it's just bad. And I will not belabor that point further. Uh, so, Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla is the first of the Reiwa-era Godzilla films. And for me, Shin Godzilla is a real return to form for Godzilla as a character. The original 1954 Gojira, the original Godzilla, was a film about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by the United States. It tackles guilt, 
fear, and the question of the human spirit in the face of seemingly insurmountable terror. It is a horror film, pure and simple. Maybe a little political, maybe a little philosophical, but it is a horror film, pure and simple. Later Godzilla films border on treating Godzilla like a superhero, you know, just kind of battling the monster of the week like Joe was talking about. And don't get me wrong, I love the whole man in a rubber suit thing, but they are, shall we say, an acquired taste. Shin Godzilla is the exact opposite of the man in the rubber suit. Let me set the scene for you. Just off the coast of Japan, a massive cavity in the ocean is formed. It's spraying water into the air and dumping what appears to be blood into underground diving tunnels. Slowly but surely, a quasi-bipedal thing emerges from the oceans. It's massive, trampling its way through a Japanese city with no apparent destination. It's disgusting to seemingly half-slug, half-amphibian, half-snake. But soon enough, it's back in the water and seemingly no longer an immediate threat. But of course, this is a Godzilla movie, and the good times are not going to last. What follows is destruction on a wide scale, with a monster that is seemingly impervious to any attack. The Japanese government and a ragtag group of misfit scientists and philosophers need to come up with a solution to this danger, or they are doomed. All right. Well, that's a Godzilla flick, right? So what? That's the first Godzilla flick, if I remember. In a way, sure. Minus the whole slug, snake, amphibian thing. Those of you who keep up with international news stories have likely already figured out that Shin Godzilla was filmed only five years after the disaster at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. For those of you who have forgotten or maybe don't know all of the details, here's a short refresher. In 2011, an earthquake forms a tsunami off of the Japanese coast, and it's aimed more or less directly at the Fukushima region. This tsunami flooded the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor, causing massive radioactive contamination and damage. As it turns out, I am a film reviewer and not a nuclear scientist. I am wildly unqualified to discuss this incident, but beyond the barest of facts. It's a complicated story, and I will try to include some good links in the show notes. Most fans of Godzilla see how Shin Godzilla is a commentary on the Fukushima disaster, from the botched evacuations to the threats of radiation, and how the bureaucracy of the Japanese government made a disaster response harder than it needed to be. And that read, on its own, is enough for someone to not think about it further. It's correct, I think. Like so many Godzilla films, the criticism leveled by the barbed satire of the Japanese government in Shin Godzilla, it, it's pretty smart. It's easily understood. And yet, I think there are some things left untalked about in Shin Godzilla. Yes, that means we are diving somehow even deeper into the depths. Follow us down. I've heard a point about Shin Godzilla having strong overtones of Japanese nationalism, and I suppose that is sort of unavoidable. The whole core of the Godzilla story, it kind of comes down to a nation coping with being on the receiving end of atomic bombs or just radiation. Well, it's going to cause some navel-gazing, right? 
inevitably, I think there is always a desire to talk about what's good with a country in a time of national crisis. For our American listeners, think back to September 11th, 2001. Within days of these attacks, you absolutely could not publicly criticize any portion of the American government for fear of public backlash or worse. Irrespective of your political leanings, we should all find that a little chilling, right? It's not possible to draw a one-to-one comparison with 9-11 to the Fukushima disaster. But you can look at how the reaction to the Fukushima disaster by the Japanese government, how you can just see how it went and see how those feelings might end up being processed. American politics might be a little hard to follow for non-Americans. And this is true kind of of most countries' politics if you're not within the country. Now, I am no expert on Japanese politics, but... Not many former American presidents have been assassinated, you know? Recall the very recent assassination of Abe Shinzo, the former prime minister of Japan. His assassin, uh, Yamagami Tetsuya, appears to have killed Abe for his connection to the Unification Church. The Unification Church and its ties to the Japanese government is entirely deeper than I can even begin to delve into, so I will share some links in the show notes. I can also see a commentary on Japan's unusual ties to America. Historically, you know, uh, their their connection to us post-World War II end up being tied into the plot. So all of that is to say is there is more going on with the commentary that exists in Shin Godzilla. I see a deep frustration with bureaucracy and government corruption in the film. As is always the case, Godzilla isn't really the main character of Shin Godzilla, Most people know that radiation is the only thing more pernicious than politics. One thing you can point to with a lot of the, I don't know, more serious Godzilla films is the human heart in every one of these films. In a way, I don't think Shin Godzilla is about the human heart. You know, it's not about human emotion. I think Shin Godzilla is actually playing with things about our super ego. This is admittedly a bit of a weird side tangent so just kind of strap in and follow me here i want to see where you take this one because i think this film is very much about the people but it's about the people working as a a whole i can no i can absolutely see that that's a i think a valid criticism but so here's my feeling about it whether or not you are a fan of the man in a rubber suit approach to godzilla there is something we are all sort of looking forward to in these movies Sometimes, the King of Monsters is defending his throne from some sort of threat. Sometimes, Godzilla is a powerful metaphor for, well, something probably nuclear. But deep down, all fans of Godzilla sort of want to see a city get stomped flat. There is something deeply satisfying about watching a city just get flattened by a giant reptile. And I would also argue that in many of the recent films, the destruction can be sort of beautiful. Uh, The 2014 Godzilla has some of the most genuinely beautiful inspired cinematography I think I've seen in a while. There's a sequence in the film where these military paratroopers are jumping into an area devastated by giant monsters. It's maybe a five or 10 second sequence. It's not very long, but there is something to that shot that I find really, really moving. If I could have a framed print of it on my office wall, I absolutely would. 
but we never talk about how absolutely fucking awful this sort of experience would actually be. You want to know how awful weapons of mass destructions are, right? We're all thinking about it a little bit. There are plenty, and I mean plenty, of written accounts from the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Or go check out the short uh, short read, The Blood of Dresden by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, I will leave a link to that in the show notes. He was, uh, for those of you who don't know, Kurt Vonnegut, the author, was a survivor of the firebombing of Dresden. He was a United States soldier. He saw the end result of it and was uh, subsequently a prisoner of war to the Germans and was involved in some of the cleanup of Dresden uh, immediately afterwards. Um, I've got to be honest with you. No one who isn't a fucking sociopath cheers after reading the blood of Dresden or after watching a, a documentary about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like white light, black rain. Look, I, I say this as someone who is a horror fan. We all love a good gnarly kill. I cheered when Franklin gets the shit ki- killed out of him by Leatherface in the original Texas Chainsaw. Fictional death and destruction can be kind of cathartic, actually. It feels good in a weird, awful way. Hell, the Fright Lab would not exist without me wanting to understand these emotions. So I get it. We want to see that big lizard go flat in a city. But you wouldn't want to be in a building getting cooked in the wake of Godzilla's radioactive breath. And Shin Godzilla is one of the first films in the canon, in my opinion, that expressly shows you how terrible that fate would end up being. Everything from the visual depiction of Godzilla cutting a building in half with radioactive fire to the literal tidal wave of blood filling a a tunnel. It's upsetting and it gives you no sense of catharsis. The image might be interesting and visually very impressive, but it is hardly inspiring. I don't feel good about it. That doesn't change anything about my enjoyment of the film. Far from it, in fact. I think Shin Godzilla is a deeply powerful film, in a perverse way. Shin Godzilla is making you ask a question. Should you enjoy this? Would you really want to see this? I've been waiting for you to bring up this part of the film. I cannot stand in a room with diehard Godzilla film fans and be an expert. I've seen the films. I go back to the films that I love the most from all different eras of the franchise. But I was able to watch Shin Godzilla with a true Godzilla fan. The first question I asked when the film was over had to do with the quality of the film. Because you mentioned the eras of Godzilla. We talk about how depending on what time or what decade it is or what is going on, how Godzilla needs to be portrayed changes based on what's going on around him and around filmmaking. What did we have before Shin Godzilla? We had an American-fronted remake that was supposed to be redeeming That's how we viewed it, right? This is redeeming the mistake we made in 1998. Now we're going to make a serious Godzilla film. And Toho just sat back and waited. And then we started to hear about Shin Godzilla. 
we started to hear about this franchise that had been asleep, dormant for many years. I wish I knew the name of the film where Godzilla made a cameo in a dream the main character was having in the beginning, but it was a reminder that he's not gone. The last film you had up until that point was Final Wars, and Final Wars is one of my favorite Godzilla films. But what is Shin Godzilla trying to do? It's trying to reset audience expectations, I think. Yes, the monster is CGI, but it's motion capture, right? They had somebody in the suit making the movements of Godzilla. Then they redid the design over the top of it. But the first time I sat through this film, when the city destruction doesn't stop and Godzilla starts to use some new powers to destroy it, it changes how you feel in that moment. The beginning of the movie is what you're expecting. For me, it established the traditional Godzilla film, which is Godzilla's here. What are we going to do about it? And then most of the movie is just dialogue of the characters, of the human beings who are trying to decide how do we deal with this problem? Because Godzilla is always a problem until there's a more evil thing that we need Godzilla to go fight for us. And I think that's the main difference between this film and the King of the Monsters. Are you talking about the uh, the new series they're yes. doing with Kong? I think they're calling that like the Monsterverse or right, something. Right. Which, don't get me wrong, and for the record, I haven't had a chance to really get into those movies. I hear they're very enjoyable. I haven't gotten around to them yet, so uh, no comment here. I refuse to comment on them until I see them. Well, let me stack this on, and then well, I'll stop talking. Sure, yeah. Um, I think that's the major difference between Shin Godzilla and the Monsterverse that we are still getting some good movies out of with Kong and King Ghidorah and Godzilla King of the Monsters. Shout out to Mothra. I miss you so much. I'm so glad you were in that movie. We love you, Mothra. And Mothra loves you. But I think that's the major difference. If the Monsterverse is Godzilla the Protector, Shin Godzilla is the Destructor. The original Godzilla, like you said in the beginning. This is what the character is and was, and we wanted to remind you of that. And unfortunately, they had a very recent event that you get to play with those emotions all over again. I wish I could feel as bad as I'm supposed to feel when I watch it, and I already don't feel comfortable. I can't remember the last time I rewatched Shin Godzilla. Because I know how gross I feel as a human. As I, as a person living in a society, I don't feel good watching that destruction happen. You know, shame and guilt and disgust are fascinating emotions, right? Because most people probably go through the course of their lives with a minimum of those things. I mean, I, I'm sure all of us have something in, in our lives that we feel a little guilty about like, man, I really shouldn't have done that or, or disgust like legitimate disgust 
it's a pretty rare emotion. There's very little that actually disgusts me. There's stuff I don't like. There's stuff I don't want to deal with. There's stuff I think is icky. But there's not a lot of things I find repulsive, repugnant. And, you know, shame, man, shame is such a potent, potent emotion. And I am I am thankful that I don't deal with much in my life that is especially shameful. Holy crap. Um, all of those things uh, to me, I, I think of the phrase survivor's guilt. Do you know what that phrase means? That's when you feel bad because you were not one of the victims, right? You were a survivor of the major tragedy or the prisoner of war. Yeah. And you feel like you don't deserve to be that. You yeah. should have been one of the people to die. Yeah. The the very, very hard and very complex emotion of like, well, the person next to me on my left died. The person on my right died. Why was I spared? Those are big, big, big terrestrial horror questions. Those are those are questions that are that are that are existential. That that are deeply dealing with how we re- relate to reality, how we relate to the thing. If you're going to say person X died and I didn't, well, okay, you're dealing with that question from the perspective of um, maybe is there a god or is there some some other entity in the universe that's, that's you know running the show? And if there is. Why did it pick me to live? Why why am I this person and not the guy on my right who also died? So the the emotions of shame and guilt and fear are kind of baked into uh, Shin Godzilla because Shin Godzilla and most Godzilla films, they're disaster films. Deep down, they're the weirdest kind of disaster film. They're the most allegorical of disaster films. But they're disaster films. And disaster films are nothing new. Uh, we all know, like fans of the show and Joe, know that I like to beat up on Marvel flicks. Because I think, ultimately, they're kind of like little more than just dressed up disaster movies. Um, think about like the first Star Wars movie, right? It shows a planet getting blowed up fairly early in the runtime. But the original Star Wars, episode four, is considered an absolute cinematic classic. It is a modern classic. All of that's well and good, but no one is supposed to cheer the destruction of Alderaan, right? We have a funny, like, cultural relationship to disaster as a subject. I feel that's kind of a a different scale, maybe, of our relationship to true crime. It's where we're fascinated by it, but maybe we shouldn't be. And we are, we're told to be thrilled at some things and to revile some other things and disaster and crime and things like that. That's, that's a place. And so much of that is cultural, right? So much of that comes from the world you're from. And we all know that horror movies, they're an outlet for your more ghoulish emotions. And Shin Godzilla in my opinion, as a horror film is brilliant because it refuses to reward you for your enjoyment of the destruction. You will not enjoy this, even if you are enjoying this. How do you feel about the ending of the film? 
are wow there's no way to talk about this without spoiling it fairly substantially so i'm gonna avoid getting too too deep into the weeds because there's a little moment kind of in the last 30 seconds of the movie where you're supposed to feel good about the fact that well we we won but the humans didn't win the humans didn't win at all they may maybe they stopped godzilla permanently maybe they present uh prevented rather some profound bad shit that was about to happen but no one won the whole you know this whole section of japan gets just utterly destroyed they waste tons of resources trying to stop this thing that barely worked but it worked and maybe on some level there are some good messages at the end like hey all of these communities around the world came together to to stop this monster and it worked and it it showed how uh, pathetic and corrupt the government is. But a lot of the, the happy ending, quote unquote, that comes with Shin Godzilla feels to me like it's intentionally kind of tacked on. That's kind of like, oh, yeah, this one thing we were worried about. We don't have to actually worry about it. It's like three lines of dialogue at the end of the movie. And OK, groovy. It's like Halloween. You can do whatever you want. You just can't kill Michael in a way. Yeah, there is some there is an element of that. Like, you know, Michael, you can feel good about it. Michael Myers didn't kill Jamie Lee Curtis. Everything feels awesome, but he didn't. He wasn't stopped. He went out the window. He'd been shot. He'd been stabbed and he just got up and walked away. He's still out there somewhere waiting for Rob Zombie to make. I'm sorry, I couldn't make I couldn't help the joke. (laughs) Um, I asked the question because. Yes, it feels tacked on, but if you're going to make me tack on that ending, I'm going to use it to further the message of the film. I think the ending is intentional. You're supposed to ask yourself, wait, did we win? Do you feel good about the movie you just watched? Because the thing that happens in the middle with the most brutal destruction of a city on film, maybe... One that you're feeling because a CGI monster that we all love is bad again, (laughs) really bad. And then when you get to the ending, yeah, we won. Did we? Do you, the viewer, feel good about the movie you just watched? I don't think you're supposed to. And if it is a tacked on ending, they used it to reinforce the original idea. No, nothing about this is good. There's this kind of funny, um, I can't remember who it was. It was a film critic, uh, but they were describing the American iteration of the film, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, as the feel-bad movie of the season. And I've always thought that was just such a fun little uh, clever turn of phrase and such a fun little satire on the idea of the feel-good movie of the summer or whatever. Um, Yeah, There's a special place in my heart for movies that end and you don't feel good about it at the end. And Shin Godzilla is a great example of that. Um, It's it's the perfect way to, okay, well, the disaster was averted, but it was still a disaster and it could have been so much worse. There's a, are you you familiar with the rock band, the Gaslight Anthem? Yes. Okay, so there's a a song lyric of theirs that I, I absolutely adore. And the lyric is, I heard about a woman once who did everything ever asked of her. She died last week, and her last words were, it wasn't worth it. There is something about the the 
almost nihilism of that phrase, of that lyric that I think is so interesting. Because in the case of Godzilla, it's like, yeah, or Shin Godzilla, rather, it's like, yeah, you know, the, the humans didn't suffer complete annihilation and some good stuff is probably maybe going to come out of the research we can do now, but you know, a lot of people died and the city got stomped flat and we nearly died for a bunch of other reasons too. So yay. (laughs) Like I said, you will not enjoy it. And even if you are enjoying it, this movie asks you if you're supposed to feel good watching it. And so, yeah, I think on one hand, it's a bad with a question mark ending, but it's also kind of the only ending that could happen with that film. If that makes any sense. Agreed. I agreed. I think the stuff that feels tacked on feels tacked on because they want you to feel like it feels tacked on. I think it's a masterful movie in that regard. There's no such thing as a fitting way to wrap up a conversation about Godzilla. It's refreshing to see the arc of the films bending back towards a more horrific angle. And there's always some horrible thing we need to process through a horrible disaster film. And Godzilla always seems ready to flatten a city for our pleasure or our disgust, whichever is more appropriate. I can absolutely understand how Shin Godzilla slid under the radar for so many people. It didn't see uh, the American release that that Godzilla Minus One has seen or is seeing. And it's not surprising, really. Shin Godzilla is a film that, at least on the surface, requires like some knowledge of like Japanese politics and Japanese culture. But I'm not convinced of that, though. If you've ever been run around in your local city hall, you might have the tiniest understanding of how bureaucracy feels. Personally, I've wanted to see a city flattened after a day-long dalliance with a local DMV. I guess what I am saying is you shouldn't let the outward impenetrability of Shin Godzilla turn you off. It is not the most accessible of Godzilla films. I, I will grant you that. But it's fairly brilliant. It's a nice change of pace for horror audiences who are maybe feeling a little exhausted of seeing knives and metaphors for grief uh, in their cinematic diet. You know, kaiju films, the, the fancy term for giant monster movies, are something of an unknown country for me. Uh, I'm actually going to be getting into some kaiju joints into my diet for 2024. So I need to ask you, dear listener, what do you think? Where should I go with this little, or maybe just giant, adventure into kaiju films? Is Shin Godzilla a new wrinkle in the Godzilla formula or... Pardon the pun, just its natural evolution. And what is your favorite Godzilla movie? Let us know. Contact us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on the Letterbox app at FrightLabPod. We can also be followed on Instagram at Fright underscore Lab underscore Pod. We've been a bit slouchy about posting there, but we're going to get back on the horse, I promise you. Also, we are on Discord. Joe, what's the address for that? And would you also let our fans know where else they might find your work? Do you have Power Rangers on that list, by the way, of Kaiju? <sighs> do, do I have to? The rabbit hole is deep, my friend. If you start with what we were given in the early 90s and then dig into the shows that led to that, you might find some pretty awesome Kaiju in there. It's, okay. it's not all about uh, 
having sodas at the juice bar. But that is not what you asked me to tell the listener. <laughs> not at all, actually. <laughs> I want everyone listening to this podcast, whether it is the first time or not the first time, I want to say thank you for listening to this episode. Join us on Discord. There's a link in the show notes, but you can find it always at discord.frightlabpodcast.com. If you're a fan of all things hardcore, heavy metal, and extreme music, you need to be listening to the podcasts we are creating at discussmetal.com. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands, heavy metal subjects, the Nerf Herder Council. I can't tell you the last time I got to talk to AJ and John in the same room, but I'm pretty sure it was Violent Night. Lucas did not approve, and I'm going to get you to watch that movie this year, my friend. You will have to fight me. I want everyone to take out their phone wherever you are listening to this podcast. Scroll to the left, scroll to the right. Find the place where you can give us that five-star review, that thumbs up, and leave us a review. Tell us how we are doing. You heard Lucas say it, the Fright Lab podcast at gmail.com. Lucas, tell everyone how much we love independent artists, independent media, and how much we want to keep this conversation going. In 2024, I really do believe you're going to see a lot of great indie media. Because in 2023, 2022, and all points backwards, indie media was always there because there are always brilliant people wanting to just do something different. Kind of like us. And I'd like to think that if you are listening to this show, you're already a big time fan of horror and you're probably doing something cool. Are you doing some like weird dark ambient project? Are you making your own horror movie? Are you just running your own little fun horror podcast? If you're doing any of those things, we want to know and we want to help you guys get that word out there. Indie media can feel a little thankless, but if you want to succeed, you need a team. And if you want to join that team, reach out to us. We're going to be happy to hear from you. And as always, The Fright Lab is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum. It is produced and co-hosted by Joseph Wren. We appreciate you all so very much. And we will talk to you again very soon. Are you supposed to feel good at the end of the original Halloween? Well, sure. Yeah. Michael Myers didn't kill Jodie Foster. Um, Jodie Foster. I'm going to let you redo that one. Jesus Christ, Lucas.